all. After our five-day snap lockdown, I was telling um, some of you this morning that it just felt like one long week since last Thursday. And so when the lockdown ended and the kids went back to school, I felt like it should be weekend, but it wasn't. It just kept going. Um, So I am very confused as to what day it is and everything, but um, it's good to see you all again. And it's really great that um, I heard that today we didn't have any any new cases, so it's a donut day, so very exciting. Um, And yeah, it's, it's, you know, I feel like the lockdown because this was our third time, um, has a tendency to get us down. I don't know about you, but I definitely had some of the lockdown blues um, in the past week. Um, you know, the ice cream came back out. You know, there, there was, it was also really hot. Um, but I think during this time, what kept me going was just knowing, you know what? We actually can this weekend see our church community again um, and to encourage each other. So I'm really glad that many of you could come today. And I'm also glad for those of you watching online that you could join us um, online as well. We're starting a new series um, on pioneers of faith, people in history whose, whose faith in God inspired them to live lives that to them probably didn't seem extraordinary at the time, but whose legacy inspire us with their faithfulness. And um, we're, we're inspired by the, uh, a couple of books. So the first one that, um, that inspired me to share today is um, called Sisters in Arms, um, written by Suki, who is a, a Melbourne um, local. And so, um, yeah, it's her first book, and uh, she's someone that some of you guys know personally. So we have purchased the book for the church, and so if you want to borrow the book, um, it is now part of the church library. We're also going to be sharing based on the books uh, by Amanda Buse, another Melbourne local author, um, and she's written a series of books um, about uh, specifically Australian history um, in, in the church, and so we're going to be going through some of those inspiring stories with you. So we really hope and pray that through this series of Pioneers of Faith that um, you would be inspired by the legacy of people who have gone before us. And those books will also be available um, for you to borrow if you need. Today, I'm going to talk to you about Katerina von Bora. But before I get to her, I'm going to give you a crash course on Christian history, um, a little bit of church history, so that we could have a bit of historical context to her times. And so bear with me as I fly through 1,500 years, all right? Um, and I'll do my best to, so that um, it makes sense. And, I, and the reason I'm doing this is because it's, I think sometimes we forget um, how much history has been shaped by religion and also how Christianity has evolved over the years. And, and it gives us a bit of perspective on where we are today. In the, in the first century after Jesus' death and resurrection, right, there was a small group of followers called disciples, and if you remember, at first they were scared, they were petrified of now sharing the story. And Jesus has gone up to, back up to heaven, but the Holy Spirit came and gave them the power and the courage and the boldness to go out and share the message. So at first they started in Jerusalem, just that tiny little city, right, in the Mediterranean. But in the next few years, they were able to share the story of Jesus in such a powerful way through their ministry and witness that Christianity started spreading, Even though they were being persecuted for their faith, they were imprisoned, beaten, killed. Christians multiplied, especially due to the work, the ministry of individuals like Paul, um, who was one of the Christian missionaries who traveled quite a bit. And it's quite impressive when you look at this uh, map 
All the little, you know, numbers and dots are places that Paul traveled to with companions like Silas and, and Mark and others. And every place he went, he established a house church. So he would find a few households that um, also believed, you know, after he shared about Jesus, they would convert to Christianity from a Roman background or from a Jewish background. And then they would be willing to run a, a, a house church from their home. And so then every place he went, these house churches would, would then multiply and grow. Well, like I said, this Christianity was not a popular religion. It was so countercultural to the religion of the time, which was the Roman religion, um, where they had you know Greek gods and goddesses and temples where they worshipped them. And so Christian emperor, uh, sorry, and so the Roman emperors uh, persecuted the Christians. And so we have famous, um, s- you know, stories and scenes of Christians being tortured at the Roman Colosseum. I know some of you have, have visited there. Um, this is where believers, you know, yes, were mauled by uh, animals, um, crucified, burnt, etc. And so because of the persecution, Christians had to worship in secret, you know, in secret in homes, in caves, in underground tunnels. So picture that, right? This this movement that despite persecution is growing, um, that met secretly in small groups. And then things changed drastically because in 300, um, in the beginning of the 300 uh, AD, Emperor Constantine, who was a Roman emperor, converted to Christianity and when he converted, he created this Edict of Milan in 313 that basically allowed for freedom of religion. So before this, if you're a Christian, imprisoned, killed. And not just Christians, other, other religious groups as well were persecuted like the Jews, etc. But um, now, because he has converted to Christianity, he has issued this edict that now Christianity is allowed. Other religions are also, there is tolerance for them. And he also appointed bishops and gave them privileges and positions in both the church and the society. So a huge seismic shift happens in the Roman Empire that had been pagan with Christianity being persecuted to now Christianity is allowed and in fact privileged where the Roman emperor himself is appointing the Christian bishops that are overseeing the various Christian regions. And There's another emperor that comes that persecutes Christians, but eventually what happens is that uh, there's another emperor who comes along. And they start building, by the way, this is uh, one of the oldest cathedrals in the world. So this is the Basilica of St. Lorenzo in Milan, built in 364 AD. And so you you have um, Christian groups that used to meet in huddled, you know, groups in caves. All of a sudden now have these grand, elaborate cathedrals that they're now gathering in. And you have in uh, 300 AD, Emperor Theodosius, um, he, he makes this uh, decree that makes this particular brand of Christianity called the Nicene Christian Christianity, the official state religion of the Roman Empire. So in just a few hundred years, Christianity goes from being this persecuted minority group to being the state religion of the entire empire. Okay, that's a huge shift. So if you look at this map, you know, all the little dots are all the missionary centers that Paul and the other Christian leaderships had established, small groups. And then you can see that um, those small groups did an amazing job of sharing the gospel, 
So the light purple, you know, Christianity was was uh, starting to spread. Sorry, the darker purple. Christianity is starting to spread. But then by the time you get to um, the Emperor Theodosius, you see the light purple, which is basically the entire Roman Empire is now Christian. Now, how do you get an entire na- empire to convert? <laughs> the answer is you don't. What's happened is that they have... Um, basically had people who were worshiping in temples say, okay, they built these basilicas and cathedrals next to the temples and say, okay, now just shift from going into this temple to going into the cathedrals now. They moved a lot of the statues over. So the statues that were for Zeus, they kind of said, okay, now this is the statue for Peter, etc." So they, they took a lot of the Roman practices and, and beliefs and they made it easy uh, for them to be able to now go to these Christian cathedrals. You can imagine the myriad of problems and corruption that this brought into Christianity. Because Christianity went from being a movement where you had to be sure that this is something you wanted to follow because you were going to be imprisoned or killed if you're found out. And so you had devout followers who who risked everything for Jesus. And now you have this situation where now the Roman pagans are being persecuted, so they all became Christian. And now everyone is Christian, but it didn't necessarily mean that you gave your life and heart to Jesus. And also, because the bishops that were appointed were not necessarily appointed because of their spiritual faithfulness, but because of their uh, financial power or their, or their role and privilege in society. And because the church regulated um, you know, who the bishops were, etc., you had church and state being aligned in a way that all of a sudden made Christianity compromised. The church hierarchy maintained the social hierarchy. There was a distinct line drawn between people and the clergy. And the people could not question the church, study the Bible for themselves. um, And if they made any claims or dissensions or criticisms, they would be labeled a heretic. They would be excommunicated, burnt at the stake, etc. After the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 AD, Europe became divided into small kingdoms, which later became the countries that we know today. And these kings had to be very careful with their relationship with the bishops, um, especially the Bishop of Rome, who was called the Pope. He was, um, all of the various bishops uh, had different regions, and because Rome was, was a very important city, um, the Bishop of Rome became the head of the church. And the, the, there's this interesting kind of um, political power play, if you look in, in history, between the religious leaders and the secular leaders, because the secular leaders were often appointed by the religious leaders, because the religious leaders uh, were from prominent families, had a lot of influence, had a lot of wealth and, and power. And so for over a thousand years, we, we call it the Middle Ages, we have this interesting, interest, you know, and if you've ever read, you know, The Three Musketeers or watched the movie, right? There's a reason why you see the cardinal, who's like the bad guy in, in, the, in the movie, um, being such a central figure with the king and queen. And it's because the cardinal, once again, has political um, power in addition to having power in the church. And so this is just, you know, when I say cardinal, whoops, go back. 
just to give you some terminology here. So once again, the bishop was the head of the church. He was the bishop, uh, the pope, sorry, was the head of the church. He was the bishop of Rome. A cardinal was someone who was an advisor to the pope. So they're the administrators of the church. Um, you had bishops and archbishops who were basically in, in overseers of a, of a region, so of a city, uh, a large area. And you had priests who, were, um, who had authority over like a town church, you know, or uh, a village church. And then you had monks and nuns who would be in monasteries or nunneries. So these were the different terminology um, used in that time and still today. And so in a lot of situations, when, when, of, when you were born into a family in the Roman Empire, if you're the firstborn son, you inherit everything. That was how the laws were. The land, the title, everything. If you're the second-born son, sometimes what they would do is then they would pay the church to make you a bishop or make you a priest. Um, so if you've seen like Sense and Sensibility or um, any of the any of the Jane Austen books, um, you'll note that a lot of them, you know, they get a small parish and they end up being, you know, the parish priest. It's not necessarily because they have this calling to serve God, but that's kind of the next thing you did um, because it was a a salaried position that a gentle nobility could do. Um, there are other like smaller, lesser uh, titles like friars, etc. But a priest, you know, that's that's a pretty um, influential, um, high class job at that time. If you were the third son, um, the family might send you into the military to kind of earn your honors and your wealth. Um, and maybe if you paid enough money, you could be an officer as well. Um, and then if you're the fourth or fifth son, et cetera, you know, the, and, and a lot of times in, the, in those days, people died as well. So they would have a lot of children and that's kind of where it went. And if you're a daughter, you'd be married off um, based on, you know, if you could marry uh, based on your dowry, what kind of families you're married into. And so people, once again, went into the church, not necessarily because they wanted to serve God, but because that was one of the few jobs that um, you could go into. And in fact, it was actually a very influential job with a lot of money attached. And so there were a lot of people who went into it with the wrong motivations. And as you can imagine, corruption ensued. Not only that, but copies of the Bible were very rare because back then um, they had to copy everything by hand. And so manuscripted Bibles would take over a year for the scribe to create Copies of the Bible were rare, and the church wanted to have control, and so um, the people were not allowed to read the Bible for themselves. Even the priests didn't have copies of the Bible. They would be given pre-written sermons, pre-written prayers that they would then share with their congregations. And the entire service was in Latin, but as we saw from the map previously, the Roman Empire had disintegrated into kingdoms where the local languages were French and German and Spanish and English and etc., and not Latin. So people had no idea what they were saying in the, in the prayers. They had no idea what the sermon was in Latin. And there was this huge growing disconnect between God's word and what was actually practiced in the church. And then something else happens that was interesting. In 1054 AD, the church, so up until this point, right? So for over a thousand years, there's only been one Christian church. And then in 1054 uh, AD, there's some political play that happens and the church and theological differences as well. And the church splits into the Roman Catholic Church on the western side of um, what used to be the Roman Empire area. And then um, 
to the to the um, east, splits into the Greek and Russian uh, Orthodox Church. So now you've got two kind of so-called denominations. Um, but in the central western part of Europe, um, it's it's called the Catholic Church. Catholic actually means global or universal. So that's what it was. That was it. That was the Christian Church. Now another event happens in 1453. The Ottoman Empire conquers Constantinople. And let me see if I can point out um, where that is on the map. So there's Constantinople. And that had actually been the capital city of the Roman Empire um, once Constantine had established it there. When the Ottoman Empire conquers Constantinople and the surrounding areas, including Greece, Islam becomes the main religion of this area. Eventually, the empire gets pushed back down to where modern-day Turkey is. But for a while, they had conquered Greece. And so what happens is the Christians who were in Greece flee. So you have this huge... uh, influx of refugees that come out of Greece and go into Italy, the nearest country. And what they did was a lot of these Greek refugees were architects and artists and musicians and scholars, and they fled with the ancient Greek texts of Plato, Aristotle, you know, etc. And when they brought them to Italy, it launched the Renaissance um, that started in Italy and spread to Europe, where you have this new, um, you know, flourishing of arts. So you've got Michelangelo, and you've got, um, you know, scholars and, and poets coming out with new ideas. And this whole Renaissance happened because of that shift in history. During the Renaissance, one of the key individuals was Johannes Gutenberg, who was a German inventor. And um, the printing press had already been invented in China, but this is the first time that it has come to Europe. And when Gutenberg uh, invents this movable-type printing press, for the first time in Europe, books and pamphlets are now available to be printed in mass. So that Bible that would take one year to complete by a scribe and that would cost so much money that hardly anyone could afford it, now was still expensive, but a bit more affordable. So the first book that Gutenberg printed was the Bible. And uh, by the way, he printed 180 Bibles, and there's 42 still that we still have today. Um, and I was looking up where they were. Um, and, and there's three that are complete, and one of them is in the British uh, Library, one of them is in the, the American Library of Congress, and the other one um, they have in Germany. So if you ever have a chance to go look at it, I encourage you to do so. These first Bibles were printed with beautiful illustrations as well. So still a bit expensive. Um, it, the for copies sold for 30 florins each, which is about three years wages if you're a clerk. And so if you're nobility, you definitely could afford this. Um, obviously, if you're not, you couldn't. But that's for these really beautiful illustrated Bibles. What they were able to print for pretty cheap were pamphlets. So not a lot of pictures necessarily, but you know, one-page pamphlets where they would fold them, small prints, and then you would fold it up and it would be a pamphlet. And those became actually really affordable to print. So that meant ideas could spread like wildfire. And knowing this, um, this threat that, would, that all of a sudden threatened people's uh, you know, the, the status quo, um, Pope Alexander VI in 1501, threatened the excommunication of anyone who printed manuscripts without the church's approval. So it is in this historical context that Katerina 
von Bora was born. So thank you for bearing with me as I gave you a crash course in church history, but I want you to understand the times that she was born into. Katarina was born into a noble family with a long history of lords and ladies. But the family had become poor, and so and, and her mother had died soon after she was born. And so at the age of around four or five, she sent away to the convent, as was the fate of many, many young girls who didn't have enough dowry to get married. And so it was cheaper for them to pay the church to take her than to, to, to marry her off later. And so they sent her to the convent in Berna, uh, where she was educated in Latin, and later she was sent to the Cistercian cloister in Nimshin. And at the age of 16, she took the vows of a nun. For many years, her life consisted of prayers, study of scriptures, worship, contemplation, and singing. That was her life, day in and day out. Then in 1517... A seismic event once again changes Europe and the rest of the world and the Christian movement. A German monk named Martin Luther began to publicly object to some of the teachings and practices of the church. He was aghast that uh, by this point the church was teaching that if you paid money, you could not only go to heaven yourself, but that you could send to heaven any of your dead relatives. If you paid the right amount, they were raising funds to build the cathedral, St. Peter's Cathedral, etc. So they said, pay an indulgence, right? pay money, and, and, he, and they would preach. You would literally take your burning relatives burning in hell and take them right to heaven, right? So when, when, when Martin Luther heard these kinds of things, he was furious. And, and he had found an old Bible uh, copied chained to a monastery wall and he had studied it and he had said hey why is the church you know requiring you to you know climb the stairs on your knees however many times in order to be forgiven of your sins the bible teaches that jesus forgives you that if the bible teaches that you're saved by faith and not by works so he wrote 95 thesis it's what it's called but basically he 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 printed these uh, 95 protests against the abuses of the church. He nailed them to the door of, of in Wittenberg, and it became this huge sensation. People started copying. The printers started making lots of money copying um, of this 95 thesis. It started going around. He started writing other pamphlets, um, sharing the teachings of the Bible. He started um, sharing things like, hey, you know, living as a nun or a monk doesn't is not a gateway to heaven, as many believed. They thought, if you go and live a pious life, you're going to go straight to heaven. They said, no, we're saved by faith, right? Um, and, and so much, of course, you can imagine uh, by this point, yeah, he, he uh, definitely has been excommunicated. He, um, the, the Pope and the Roman Emperor wanted to kill him. But remember, those smaller kingdoms, the Prince of Saxony, which is we know it as Germany today, um, he protected Luther. So if it hadn't been for him, Luther would have been killed. But he protected Luther. And because there was this power play between the secular political leaders and, and the religious leaders, they couldn't quite touch Martin Luther during this time. And so Martin Luther is safe for now. But anyone who read any of Martin Luther's writings was going to be excommunicated, imprisoned, called heretic, and burned to the stake. Well, in, in 1519, a man named Wolfgang uh, von Svau had heard Luther for himself and was so convicted of its truths that he smuggled a large portion of Martin Luther's texts to his nieces, who were nuns in Nimshin. And so these two 
sisters, these um, Marguerite and Veronica, tapped Katerina von Bora on the shoulder and said, hey, come, come in the middle of the night, come to our room. So these ladies secretly gather, right, carefully light a candle, and they start reading these contraband pamphlets from, from Martin Luther. And they were lucky enough to have a copy of the Bible in their, in their laundry library. So they would secretly go read the passages of Galatians and Ephesians and the Bibles and compare what Luther was saying with what the Bible was saying. And as they'd studied little by little every night and for months, they were so convinced that what Luther was sharing was true. But what could they do? They, they, they felt convicted that they could no longer be, be nuns and, and, and support this institution that they, they believed was no longer in line with what the Bible was saying. But what could they do? If they ran away, they'd get caught, they, they would be uh, imprisoned, they would be killed. And even if they escaped successfully, right, their lives have to change. In that time period, as a woman, you couldn't get a job. There were no jobs available. You had to get married. And so imagine these women who had been nuns, right, who had taken vows of celibacy. If, if they um, get caught, they'll get killed. If they escape, not, they have to get married, which is a complete change of their life you know, direction. In 1522, Margaret wrote to Martin Luther himself asking for help. And he wrote back. And he devised a plan to smuggle these 12 ladies out of the nunnery in Wittenberg. Can you imagine? And do you know what he did? He arranged a local merchant, a fish merchant, to come and smuggle these ladies out. And so here comes the wagon with 12 empty but not completely clean fish barrels. And these nuns in the, you know, can you imagine who for days have just been praying and years have just been in this silence and solitude and, you know, cunningness and have to climb into these fish barrels where for two days, over a hundred kilometers of being in the back of a wagon on a bumpy road in the Roman, you know, not being able to eat, drink or relieve themselves cramped in there. And if they are caught, they're going to get burnt at the stake. But they did it because they wanted to be faithful to their conscience. And so in April 7th, 1523, after a very uncomfortable, <laughs> a very challenging journey, they reached Wittenberg, where Martin Luther was, their little safe haven created by Prince Frederick, and there the, the ladies got out. And when they got out, Martin Luther and the other kind of um, his friends who were, who were um, you know, unbeknownst to them, starting this Protestant Reformation, they said, well, what do we do with them? You know, we can't support them all. And so they started um, matchmaking them. And so most of the women did get married off, all but two. One uh, woman who became a head, a teacher, uh, a headmistress, which was one of the few available jobs for women. And then there was one woman left, Katerina von Bora. Now, it's not that she didn't have options. She had actually formed a bond with a man named Hieronymus Baumgartner, <laughs> um, who was a student at the University of Wittenberg. And they had you know, kind of fallen in love. But 
He was from a prominent family. His father was the councilman. Um, he was somewhere high in the council. And the family was horrified at the idea of their son marrying an ex-nun who was poor and who was gasp, 24 years old, who was considered past her prime at that time. And if he married her, he'd be breaking both the secular and religious laws. The whole family would be ruined. They could be, all be excommunicated and killed. And so because of the family pressure, he didn't marry her. And Katarina was a bit heartbroken. And then Martin Luther tries to like match her up with all these different guys. And she finally just says, hey, enough. And I think she said this to kind of get them all to leave her alone. She said, I don't want to marry anyone unless it's Nicholas, one of the friends, or, or Martin Luther. Okay? And she, I think she thought that would just get them all to leave her alone and be quiet. But, but Nicholas tells Martin this, because she told this to Nicholas, who was trying to match up with this old pastor nearby. And she had said, no, I don't want to marry anyone except for you or Martin Luther. And I guess Nicholas was like, oh. He goes back to Martin Luther and tells him, this is what Katharina said. And after some, some debate, Luther says, all right, I'll take a proposal. And so on Tuesday, June 13, 1525, Katharina von Barra and Martin Luther get married. Now, this was the scandal in Europe because here is a monk who has broken his vows of celibacy, marrying a nun who had broken her vows of celibacy. This marriage, you have to understand, that's why I give you the long history, right? This marriage flouted, right, a thousand years of church teaching on celibacy and the priesthood. He is the first priest in the history of the church to be married, and she is the first pastor's wife. This is a big deal. This was such a controversial thing. Everyone was shocked. Even some of Luther's friends were dismayed. Erasmus um, of Rotterdam, who was a very prominent Catholic priest, said their marriage would result in the birth of the Antichrist. Okay? This, this was, it was such a scandalous thing for uh, this couple to, to get married. The eyes of the world were on them. And as often was and still is the case, they were critical of Katerina. The public ridiculed or vilified her. Martin True, a historian at the Luther Society in Wittenberg, um, wrote, Women at the time were supposed to be seen and unheard. Von Bora was seen as self-confident, strong-willed, and independent, which were all negative attributes for women at the time. And still today, in a lot of places, People were incredibly harsh to her at times. But she didn't let public gossip or criticism stop her. She and Martin were setting off a chain reaction that became the Protestant Reformation. They were shaping the political and religious spheres of Europe and changing history forever. And she embraced the challenge full on. In order to finance Luther's teachings and writings and traveling, Katharina took on the management of the household. She turned uh, a three-story former monastery into a type of boarding school for theology students, a hostel, kind of Airbnb for visitors. Um, sometimes the, hosp the house became a hospital, refused, received refugees, provided meals and beds for all, and somehow she found money to cover all the costs. At times, she would have over 40 people in her home to feed. 
through financial creativity of her own, she um, and she hired um, some help as well. She managed to purchase and maintain two farms and orchard, raised farm animals, and even ran a brewery. She raised six children of her own, as well as seven nieces and nephews, and four orphans. And if this doesn't sound like a superwoman to you, she also participated in what's called table talks. After dinner, Luther, Katerina, and some select guests would sit around the table discussing theology and politics in Latin, hammering out the intellectual framework of the Protestant Reformation. And this is the real table. Um, the, you can visit the house um, in Wittenberg. And that's the table that they would sometimes sit around. Her presence at these table talks, as they became known as, was extremely unusual. You know, at the time, women were excluded from such discussions. Um, which, and I just want to mention here that this was such a, a, um, an example of how culture had been impacted because a thousand years before that, right, when in the first and second century when Christianity was a persecuted religion, you had women leaders leading worship. You had women leaders um, like, uh, like Priscilla working alongside uh, um, her husband going around and sharing um, Christianity with the world. You had ladies like Lydia who are, are leading prayers uh, meetings um, by the river. And so Christianity, once again, had, um, it had been impacted by the Roman culture and now had been come to this status where the priests um, and, and, the, and the bishops and et cetera were all men. And so during this time of the Protestant Reformation, the culture is shifting again, right? So the Protestant Reformation, once again, um, made people go back to the Bible, go back, go back to the teachings of what God taught. And one of the things of the Protestant Reformation that came out is this idea of the priesthood of all believers. Because in the Bible, God makes it very clear that in Christ there is neither male nor female, Greek or Jew, slave nor free, and that we are all a priesthood of believers. Right? And so even though in that time there's still prejudice, etc., you see that Katerina is starting to break that mold. There she is at the table talks. And it's interesting um, because there's some transcripts of debates and, and, and she was not afraid to disagree with Martin Luther. There's transcripts of them having a robust discussion and, and disagreement about um, Abraham sacrificing Isaac and why they think that happened. And, and there's this healthy, robust you know, discussion happening be between um, Martin and Katerina. Sabine Kramer, a historian, um, wrote, Luther played his role in the Reformation, but it's important to remember that she played hers too. There wouldn't have been table talks if she hadn't provided the table. Sometimes when they would get into heated disagreements, Luther would tease her and call her my Lord Katie or Mrs. Doctor. And we can tell the kind of affectionate marriage they had despite, um, you know, in the beginning it was a very much an arranged marriage. In the beginning it wasn't a marriage of love. But you can tell that they did fall in love with each other um, because we have 21 letters of Luther to, um, to his wife that still survive to today. And he calls her many affectionate terms, my sweetheart Katie. He called her Wittenberg's morning star because she got up at 4 a.m., because she had so much to do, right? Um, she woke up at 4 a.m., so he called her the morning star of Winterberg. His favorite, most beloved text in the Bible was the epistle to the Galatians, and he named it after her. He's Kate von Bora. He signed his letters, the old loved one, and he said he would not change his wife for France or Venice, nor would he take another wife, even if he was offered a queen. 
And when he died in 1546, he did something that was so radical. He left her as the main beneficiary of his estate, a decision that was unheard of at the time because all the, you know, everything went to the male, nearest male relative. Sadly, the lawyers did not uphold Luther's wish, and Chancellor Bruck, the executor of the will, said all the children had to be sent away from Katarina, except for her youngest daughter. They stripped her of all her autonomy, took all of the wealth that she had accumulated for years. So for many years, she was destitute, very poor, um, had to basically ask you know, the prince for help, and was able to make do because of his help, but it was a very difficult remaining time of her life. And in the winter of 1552, while she was fleeing a pandemic, um, the plague, she was in a wagon that rolled over. She was thrown into a canal filled with ice water, and uh, she was severely injured. And so after suffering quite, quite intensely, she died at the age of 53 on December 20, 1552. And it's recorded that on her deathbed, her last words were, I will cling to my Lord Jesus Christ as a burr on a coat. And I love that image of her, of her saying, I'm going to cling to Jesus. Katerina wasn't perfect. You know, she had flaws like the rest of us. She and Martin were quite anti-Semitic, like many in their times. She could be quite stubborn and easily irritated. At one point, Luther joked that if he could um, withstand temptation and the devil, that he could withstand Katerina's um, angry, angry tantrums with him. And, um, you know, he would often tease her about, about her, her ways. So she wasn't a perfect person, right? But her contribution to Christianity was extraordinary. She defied all of society's laws and expectations, and she risked death and destitution because she had faith in God, that he would provide for her, that his word was supreme over comfort, reputation, over life itself. She tackled everything in her, in her life, whether it was, you know, children, whether it was um, the finances, because Martin Luther, he wanted to give everybody free refuge, and, he, you know, and, and the money had to come from somewhere, so she, she took care of all the household business. She, t- she you know, would have these theological discussions. Everything she did, she tackled with a passionate conviction that God was worth living for, worth dying for, that he was real and powerful, and that he cared for them personally. And even though community and society didn't accept her, she continued to be a pillar for Luther, who often suffered from deep depression. She counseled and encouraged him in those moments, enabling him to keep on going. And sometimes she would even kind of have to go to extremes. There's a story of her one time when, when Luther was particularly you know, in a kind of deep funk. She dressed in all black. And he finally noticed and said, are you going to a funeral? And she said, well, since you're acting like God is dead, I figured I would join you in the morning. And that shocked him so much that um, it helped him get out of his funk um, and to keep on going. You can imagine it it was such a difficult time for these pioneers because that's what they were, right? The first couple that dared to defy 
the state church of the entire empire, um, the entire region. And I'm sure they often felt alone. And that she especially often felt alone. But she kept her eyes fixed on Jesus. Through the intense and the unfair criticism of the world, through the constant pressures and threats on their lives, every time Martin went to travel, she had to wonder, is he going to come back to me alive or will he be captured by the Pope? Through the death of her seven-month-old baby, Elizabeth, through a very difficult miscarriage, the heartbreaking death of her 13-year-old daughter, Magdalene, and the death of her beloved husband, Martin. And even facing her own death, she clung to Jesus like a burr on a coat. A statue of her is at Wittenberg in front of their old house, which is now a museum. And I like how it depicts her kind of mid-stride, right? purposeful and in action. She reminds me of the first century missionary Paul, who was also an educated, respected, and privileged member of society and could have remained so, but left it all to be a persecuted Christian. And this is what he says in Philippians that I think um, rings so true to both their experiences. Paul wrote, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Katharina von Barrow pressed on, clinging to Jesus. She was a pioneer of faith, reminding us all through her legacy that knowing Jesus is worth everything. I pray that we too may find such faith and that we too would cling on to Jesus as we press on. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the example of Katharina von Bora, who left the comfort and privilege of her status and risked everything to be your follower, to be faithful to your word, to follow her conscience and your Holy Spirit. And Father, we struggle so many times to choose you over our convenience. But help us to remember her legacy. Help us to remember the examples set before us, the pioneers of faith who show us that, yes, it is worth it. And who knows but that it might shape the world around us now if we were to be as faithful. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to give us that inspiration, to give us that courage to press on and to cling to you like a burr on a coat. 
and to trust that you have got our backs and that you will provide for us. We pray for Melbourne. Father, it's been a challenging time for many of us. Some of us have lost loved ones this week. I pray that you would comfort them. I pray that you be those who are sick or suffering. And I pray for those who are lonely in their hearts or struggling. You know what we're all going through. And we ask that you would help us to persevere and press on and cling to you. And that we would find the strength to change our communities by the kind of lives we live. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.